0: This is the West Point Sermon Podcast. Thank you for joining us online this week. If you'd like to give or support West Point Church in any way, you can visit westpoint.org/give. We hope you enjoy today's message and have a great rest of your week. Right, uh, we're gonna we're gonna study God's Word together this morning, and we are in the book of Acts. We have been studying through the entire book of Luke since Christmas last year, and we went from Luke to the book of Acts, which was written by the same guy. Uh, So we went from the birth of Jesus, even before the birth of Jesus, in Luke chapter 1, all the way through his childhood, into his life, into his crucifixion, into his resurrection, into his ascension into heaven, his commission to the disciples who carried on his work, and, and that story kind of um, shifts from the focus of what was happening with the apostles in Jerusalem to now what's happening with Paul as he went and traveled to Corinth and to Ephesus and, and all these different places. And now he's he was back in Jerusalem last week, and he was arrested. And we know um, that he stayed in chains for the rest of his life. He stayed in prison for the rest of his ministry. But he had one more journey that was facilitated by the Roman government. (laughs) He he appealed to Caesar, and so he was headed to Rome. And uh, where we left off last week was actually Paul in prison, still in Israel. And as he was in prison there, he heard the voice of the Lord saying, You're going to Rome. And so that's kind of where we left off that story. And I'm going to tell you a little bit this week. This is a little bit different than than what I normally do on Sunday morning. I, I consider myself a preacher, not a teacher. But in order to kind of get through these three chapters of the book of Acts, uh, I'm going to have to do a little bit of Bible teaching this morning. So are you all right with that? We're going to cover... Three chapters this morning, we're going to go through a lot of material, so just hang with me, get excited, get ready. If you have a Bible, um, we're going to actually read through Acts 26, but we're really going to start the story in Acts chapter 24, so it's up to you how you want to follow along this morning. So as I said last, we left off Paul. He was in prison. He heard the voice of the Lord, said, you're going to Rome, and immediately after that happened, there was a plot to kill Paul. This, this tended to happen a lot in Scripture, all right? That godly men doing godly things, people want to kill them. Uh, that's how the enemy works. He wants to take out people who are doing God's will. But God's protection was over Paul. Some of the Jewish leaders uh, even made a commitment. They said, we will not eat another bite of food until he's dead. Now, something tells me that didn't happen because it was a long time before Paul lost his life years later. But they had this plot, and they were working on it, and Paul's nephew overhears what's going on. And so he goes to the judge who was holding Paul, and he said, the Jews want to take Paul down to the council tomorrow, but don't do that. They're going to jump you on the way, and they're going to kill him. The tribune said, no worries, we'll just bring 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen, and they can go ahead and try to kill him. (laughs) And so they, they lined up these Roman soldiers and they went to have this trial for Paul. And this kind of begins the story of a long line of leaders who, have to, uh, a, who are trying to figure out a reason to convict Paul. And they don't really have one. <laughs> so they're trying to find one because the Jewish leaders want to, want to have him executed and they need a reason to do that. And so in, in order to kind of pacify the people that they're serving and to do the right thing according to the law, that was a tricky situation. And so they, they ended up with a compromise that, that um, we do a lot as, as human beings. We pass it on to the next person and, and make it their responsibility instead. So first they bring him to Claudius Lysias. He hears Paul's case. He says, he's done nothing wrong, but they're going to kill him, so we'll just keep him in jail. And so he passes him on to the next guy, and his name is Felix. And Felix is in Caesarea, which is a little ways from Jerusalem. It's a city on the Mediterranean coast, a beautiful place. And in chapter 24, Felix hears Paul's case, and Paul um, gives him a very reasoned argument. He says, hey, I didn't do anything I wasn't even preaching yet. If you remember last week, we talked about how Paul went to Jerusalem and and the, the Christian leaders in Jerusalem said, Hey, we know you're going to preach. We know you're going to upset people. But, hey, let's let's try to do everything to remove the offense before you start preaching the gospel because that's offensive enough. So we'll remove the offense of um, you being here. And if you go through the purification process in the temple first, that might open up the doors for people to more readily hear what you have to say. Well, the problem was the Jews that Paul uh, had recognized Paul as he had been preaching in Ephesus. And so they were from another country, that, but they were Jews and they were back in Jerusalem. And they're like, hey, we know that guy. He's the one that's preaching this gospel. He's the one that's preaching about Jesus. And uh, let's just throw him in jail now. So they actually first attacked him and then he was put in prison by the Romans And so Felix hears Paul's case, and he said, I haven't done anything. In fact, um, I hadn't even started preaching yet. Uh, And and here's what Felix responded in, in chapter 24. It says, but Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, that's the way that they referred to what Paul was teaching, the message of the gospel, the message of Jesus, having an accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, when Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And so he passed it back off to Lysias. And Paul was in custody, but treated relatively well, and he was able to see his friends again. So they, they still kept him in prison, but they made it a little bit nicer. They allowed his friends to come visit him because they knew they really didn't have a case against him. So after a few days Felix calls him back and says and Paul shares about righteousness, self-control and the coming judgment. That didn't go so well. So he shared the message with him. He preached a salvation message ultimately. But Felix had something different in mind. He was hoping for a bribe. It says that that he was hoping that Paul would give him money. And Paul didn't have any money, so he went back prison. And when 2 years had elapsed, okay, that's where we pick up the story. So Felix puts him back in prison because he doesn't have any money to pay him. The Jewish leaders are are mad at Paul. Verse 27 says when 2 years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Once again, <laughs> Uh, to curry favor with the Jewish leaders, he left them in prison. Two years later, new leader in control, and the Jewish leaders came up to this guy Festus now. Talk about holding a grudge, right? He's been in prison for two years, and he hasn't even done anything. And two years later, they're like, hey, new leader, let's see if we can get this guy to do something about this. And so they start pestering Festus, too. (laughs) And he's like, okay, well, then you need to come down and tell me what charges you're bringing before I have him executed. Like, we need to have a a reason. And so Festus had kind of this idea of, of, of that law was important to him. And so they made all sorts of false claims, and they had another trial for him. And Paul gave his defense, the normal stuff that he said. I haven't done anything. My conscience is clear. I haven't said anything yet that would even offend you. Like, I didn't even start teaching yet. But verse 9 of chapter 25 says, once again, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor. Are you catching a theme here? Said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and to be tried on these charges before me? So he's saying, hey, Listen, let's compromise here. They want to drag you back to Jerusalem and hang you. But what if we both went back to Jerusalem and we did the trial there? And then verse 10, he says, but Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal right now, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I've done no wrong. And as you yourself know very well, if then I'm a wrongdoer, And have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there's nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. All right, so this is the level of humility and submission that Paul had. He's like, hey, if I've done anything wrong, if I've done anything against the law, if I've done anything worthy of death, then by all means, execute me. I willingly submit myself to that. But then he he went on to say, I appeal to Caesar. Now, as a Roman citizen, Paul had the right, as all Roman citizens had, to appeal to the high court of Caesar to be tried before him. Now, I think he was probably thinking at this point, I know the Lord has promised that I'm going to Rome. I'm confident of that. I'm eager to get here. I know how we can make this happen a little bit faster because I'm sick of sitting here in prison waiting around for something to happen. So, if I'm going to Rome, I'm going to have the Romans pay for it, right? I'm appealing to Caesar send me there. I'll go on trial and I'll get a chance to share the gospel with Caesar himself. That's pretty gutsy right? Especially since Paul knew full well who was Caesar at that time. You see this new guy had taken over. His name was Nero. He started killing Christians. He was a maniac. He burned Rome itself. He was, he was nuts. He absolutely was a cruel and evil person. And Paul said, hey, but well, what if I tell him about Jesus? What if we had guts like that? as Christians, to go to the people that that are maybe the most hopeless cases. You look at a guy like Nero and who he was and what he stood for. And Paul said, hey, here's an opportunity paid for by the Roman government. I'm going to go share the story of Jesus Christ with Caesar himself. He was a bold man. Now, I've had moments in my life where I've felt like the Apostle Paul was feeling in this moment, sitting in a cell for two years. Now, I have not literally been sitting in a cell for two years, but there have been moments where I've been waiting on the Lord for something, where he's promised me something, and I'm sitting here wondering, okay, God, I know you promised this to me. When am I going to see the fulfillment of when this happens? And sitting there in that process, just waiting on the Lord is a difficult thing to do. And, and Paul is waiting in that prison. And, it, you know, can I tell you something that I've learned in my own personal experience? If you feel stuck, if you feel like you're in prison, if you feel like you're just waiting on the Lord to do something, don't miss or resist the process of the Holy Spirit's refinement of your life in that moment. Every moment that you're waiting, you're waiting for a reason. And God is doing something in that process to work on you. He's promised that that he who started a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. So if we're not willing to work in that process to be refined by the Holy Spirit, we're never going to see the completion of his work inside of us. Paul was literally in prison. And The Holy Spirit was shaping the story, shaping the testimony that he was about to share over those two years. So now Felix, or sorry, um, Festus is sharing this story with his boss, with King Herod Agrippa II. All right, now I want to give you a little bit of background on who this guy was. Now there were four Herods. Okay, and this is Herod Agrippa II, and he's most notable because he is the last Herod. And uh, it says that Felix was sharing this story with Herod Agrippa and his sister Bernice. Um, Now, one of the things that, that we know most about this Herod in particular was that he was always with Bernice, and there was a reason for that. Even though she was his sister, there was an incestuous relationship that was going on that was well known. Uh, the, the historian Josephus wrote about this as well. And, and so there was, there was this weird relationship. And so, if, if we could say one thing about this particular Caesar, um, we might say, or this particular Herod, we might say, we might refer to him as Herod with Bernice. Okay? Um, you'll hear that a lot in, in the times that he's mentioned in this chapter. And so Festus goes to Herod and he says, Felix left me this prisoner, and I, being the noble person that I am and wanting to do the right thing, gave him a trial immediately, right? Out of the goodness of my heart, I did that. Um, but, but the Jews were mad about this Jesus guy, and I don't understand this Jewish stuff. I'm a Roman. So I heard his case. I offered to take him to Jerusalem and to hear his case there. But listen, you're more familiar with these Jewish customs than I am. Why don't you talk to this guy? Why don't you hear what he has to say? And so he brings this information and Agrippa hears what he has to say. And he agrees to do that now just to give you a little bit of history about the four Herods. Um, this Herod's father um, was Herod Agrippa I. Now, if you remember um, in early on in the book of Acts when the apostle James had died and when Peter was arrested, that was that Herod, all right? So that was his dad, and then his dad was another Herod. He was the one that had... Um, John the Baptist executed and his head put on a platter for his wife. Just a wonderful family lineage. And and it keeps getting better because if you were to go back one more generation to Herod the Great, he was the one that tried to have Jesus killed as a baby because he was worried about a successor to his throne. So grandpa, great-grandpa, I mean, this guy, family he had it made, his lineage was established as being an awful, hateful, Christian-murdering heritage. So this is Herod Agrippa II. This is where he's coming from, and he's like, absolutely, Let's, let's hear what this guy has to say. So verse 22 of chapter 25 says, then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. Now, I wish you could, I could take you with me to the scene of this courtroom because I visited there a couple of years ago when we were in Israel, and it's right on the Mediterranean. They've, they've discovered the ancient ruins of, of Herod's palace, and it's just this beautiful, pristine blue water, and uh, it's this beautiful coastline, and, and we stood right where the courtroom would have been, and I wish you could see it in that place. It's truly a majestic scene. It's beautiful. It's incredible, and and I want you to picture this because here is this king, who's inherited his position, who's relatively young. He's probably uh, he was 17 years old when he took over, so he's still a teenager, and he's in this position now. He's in this ruler position, and probably you know has everything that you could possibly ask for, wealthy, beyond your wildest dreams. And he's seeing this guy, Paul. And the Bible doesn't describe what Paul looked like, but we do have a little bit from church history of what he looked like. Uh, One historian wrote about him that he was bow-legged. And another one wrote that he was bald. Uh, And then another wrote that he kind of had a unibrow, so the only place that he could grow hair was between his eyebrows. He was an ugly, bow-legged, bald guy with a unibrow. And here he is in this fabulous, immaculate palace before this, this young, probably good-looking king who's, who's got the world at his feet. And he's... Standing in the sky, and Paul doesn't exactly take the the quiet, meek, humble approach in his testimony as you're about to hear. And so if you have a Bible and you want to turn with me to chapter 26, and here's Paul's defense before Agrippa. Verse 1, it says, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you're familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. And therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. All right, so he wasn't just flattering him here, although he was probably trying to be respectful. Herod did understand the Jewish customs. He grew up around Jewish people. And so verse 4 says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation, and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They've known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial Because of my hope in the promise made to God, to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I'm accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so. In Jerusalem, I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues. And I tried to make them blaspheme. In raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities." And to this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in a Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I'll just explain what goads are, because if you don't get that, uh, it's, it's not going to make a lot of sense. Goads were were a tool that were used in caring for livestock or, or cattle of some sort, and it would be a board with a nail or a sharp point at the end of it. And so they would use that to motivate animals. and And if they were frustrated, they might kick against this thing, but who does it hurt when you kick something sharp? Not the board, right? It's the person who's kicking it. And so he's making that point here. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. But rise, stand up on your feet. I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you a servant and witness to the things which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. that They may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, And also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. And for this reason, the Jews seized me and tried to kill me. And to this day, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and what Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And he was saying these things in his defense. And Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. So here's this Festus guy again. He passed him off, and now he's feeling like he needs to chime in, right? Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. Keep your mouth shut. No, he didn't say that. (laughs) But I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, are you trying to convince me to be a Christian? He says, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Paul said, yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for the fact that I got handcuffs on right now. Then the king arose, and the governor, and Bernice, right? And those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa, who came from a long line of evil (laughs) Jesus follower murderers, said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. You know, here's the thing that that I learned about Paul. And I'm done teaching for a second. I'm going to preach for a little bit, okay? As we close this morning. Paul was always ready to turn a trial into a testimony. He was always always ready to take something where he was on the defensive and turn it into an opportunity to share Jesus with the world. He said, you want to put me on trial before Caesar? Great, I'll tell him about Jesus. You want to put me before all these different judges? Great, I'll tell them about Jesus. You want to put me on trial before Herod, who has a reputation, uh, and a family history of killing my friends, great, I'll tell him about Jesus too. That's exactly how he operated. You know who else did that? Jesus did. Always turned a trial into a testimony. When he was asked questions by the woman at the well, what did he do? He said, hey, you want to drink something from this well right now? I have something you can drink and never be thirsty again. When the crowds came to him and and the disciples said, hey, we need to give them something to eat, he fed them, and then he said, oh, and by the way, I am the bread of life. He took the situation that he was in, always pointing them to the hope of heaven. You know, we need to learn how to do that as Christians, to take the conversations that we have and it doesn't come naturally. You know how you you learn how to do that? You have to listen to the Holy Spirit. It's the only way. You have to learn to be tuned into his voice. I can tell you right now that when you're tuned into the Holy Spirit's voice, you will have opportunities to share your faith. If you're sitting there thinking, I just never feel like I have that opportunity to speak up about what I believe, that it's just seems unnatural and forced... You need to start listening to the Holy Spirit, and he's going to give you those opportunities. I mean, that's exactly what Paul was doing. He looked at every situation that he was in as an opportunity to share the hope of Jesus with the world. Not only do we need to learn how to share our faith and defend our faith and speak about the hope that's in us like Paul did, but we need to teach our kids to do that as well. We need them to know what they believe and to know how to defend their faith and to know the word of God so that when the time of testing comes, when the time of trial comes, it can become a time of testimony. So often what we're doing with our kids is, is we're, we're bringing them to church and they're getting a little taste of what Jesus is like. But if we don't go further than that, if we don't teach them what it means to be a follower of Christ, we don't teach them why it's so important to study God's word, then they're going to go to college or they're going to go to their job. And when they, when they face that first person that confronts them with a question, will they have the answer to the hope that's within them? Will they not know what to say? Parents, that's our responsibility. Listen, it's great that you're bringing your your, your kids to church. And we're going to do our best that we can, but we, we maybe get an hour a week with them. You know, I, Abby is starting as our, our kids director. She's going to pour into your kids for that one hour that she has with them. But that's one hour a week where you spend a lot of time with your kids. Are you teaching them? what it means to follow Christ? Are you helping them cultivate deep roots in their faith? It's not going to happen unless you're intentional about it. It won't happen through osmosis because you understand it. Your first line of defense as a Christian when you're attacked, when you're put on trial, is your faith story. Did you see what Paul did there when he was brought on trial? And he did this several times in his life. And they challenged him, and they they brought charges against him. What was his first response? Hey, here's my story. Here's what happened to me. Here's how Jesus encountered me. And he didn't stop there. He went on to teach about, about what the Old Testament said about Jesus. He went on to talk about what Moses said about Jesus. He went on to give evidence of Jesus and the life that he lived, but it started with his story. You know why that's so important? Nobody can argue with your story, right? Nobody can argue with what happened to you and what you feel and what you believe. They can argue about facts. They can argue about details, but they can't argue about what's inside you. So that's a great place to start. You know, I think one of the the, Biggest problems that I see is that Christians don't even know their own testimony. Have you ever written it out for yourself? Have you ever written out why your faith is so important to you? Thought through that process because the Bible tells us to always be prepared to give an answer for the hope that's inside of you. And if you can't even begin with your story, how are you thinking you're going to be able to defend What it means to be a believer in Christ. You know, there are two major problems right now um, and in relation to why unbelievers aren't coming to church right at this moment. And and maybe you're here today and that's you and and that could very well be. But as a whole right now, unbelievers aren't coming to church. and, And the first one is that they're afraid. Uh, this pandemic has caused a lot of fear in people, and they're scared, and, and so they don't want to add something else to their life right now. And that's a, a major roadblock. And the second one is that Christians have stopped inviting their friends because they're scared too. And so if, if unbelievers aren't coming to church, does that mean that the Great Commission is just on pause for the next few weeks, months, years, whatever the time frame might be? Does that mean we just get to take a break? You know, there are still people dying. There are still people going to hell. We still have a commission from Christ. We still have a challenge that he's given us to make disciples of the whole world. And so if they're not coming to us, then we need to go to them. And we need to start looking for opportunities to share your faith. Now, We as a church, we're doing everything that we can. And maybe there are people watching online right now. Um, You know, sharing is caring, by the way. So even if you're here in person, go on Facebook and share the live stream. You never know who it might catch, who might see it. And that's one way of sharing your faith. But can I tell you something? You need to go beyond that. And I'm not just preaching to you, I'm preaching to me too. I hold myself to this standard as well. There are people that I encounter and interact with on a regular basis that don't know Christ. And I might be their only link to the hope of heaven. We got to start thinking this way, church. We've been passive for too long. We need to start seeing the relationships that we have as opportunities. We need to start seeing the challenges and the trials that we face as an opportunity to share our testimony. Because if we're not willing to do that, what hope does the world have? It's up to us. God didn't create multiple plans with with lots of fail-safes. He gave One commission to his church. We are the plan for the world to know Christ. So as we close tonight, I'm going to ask a couple of questions. Can I just be blunt? I mean, I love asking that question because, like, what are you going to say, right? No, no, don't be blunt, Pastor Paul. First question is this, and there's three questions I want to ask. If you were asked to share your testimony, could you? And and I know uh, before you just dismiss that question, like, really think about it. Like, if somebody asked you to share your testimony, would you know what you wanted to say? And can I challenge you? If you've never done this before, write it out. Take some time, and it's going to take you a while. And just... Write out your life story and then write out how Christ has been a part of that story and how he's shifted and changed it to being not just a part of that story to actually about him. That's what a testimony is. If you've never done that before, try it. And if it's been a long time, you probably have a lot to add to that story. And then practice it as well practice sharing that testimony so that that it's not just something that's on a piece of paper but it's on your heart and it's on the tip of your tongue that in a moment you can launch into your story of what Christ has done for you second question is this when is the last time you told an unbeliever your testimony i'm not talking about other christians listen it's great to share your story with other believers it, it's encouraging i love to hear your story In fact, Revelation tells us that that we overcome Satan by the word of our testimony, right? So it's still important to share that story with other believers, but when's the last time you've shared it with somebody who doesn't know Christ? Think about that. Who can you share that with? And then the last one is, what are you doing to strengthen your testimony? Because your story is a great starting point, but there's so much more. Uh, when we understand the word of God and when we're, we have a grasp of what's in that, it gives us the ability to speak things that we wouldn't normally be able to. When we have an understanding of the evidence of the life of Christ, that's just another tool in our, in our tool belt to share the love of Christ with the world around us. You know, there's a, a great book out there that I think every Christian should read. It's called The Case for Christ. It's written by a guy named Lee Strobel. And if you haven't read it, it's a it's an incredible book. He was a journalist that went out to prove that Jesus was made up, that he was a work of fiction. And in the process, in his research, he got saved. It's an incredible story. It's an incredible book. And, and he looks at it from the perspective of an outsider what it means to know Christ. If you want to talk about evidence of who Christ was, that he lived, that he died, that he rose again, that's a great place to start. Building up our ability to share that testimony so that when we have the opportunity to answer for the hope that's in us, it's there. As I said, if, if the world isn't coming to us, we need to go to them. We need to stop being passive in our faith. I hope you're not here this morning to be entertained. Because if you were, you're probably going to be disappointed. I'm not that great of a speaker, right? But if your hope is in Christ and in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then that message should be our highest priority. Because there's a world all around us that needs to hear it.